0: We're on week three of a series that goes through the whole gospel story, and after today, we're a little less than a quarter of the way there. The goal of this series is to get a sense of the whole story of how God has been rescuing the world through his people, beginning with his covenant with Abraham in Genesis, and ending with the fullness of God's presence returning to the new earth. I also really hope that as we continue through this series, that you'll get a sense of how beautiful the story of God's rescue of the world really is, and that you'll be excited to be a part of it. This story has been profoundly motivating for me, and whenever I feel discouraged in doing what God has called me to do, or tempted to take a shortcut here and there, it's always helped me to remember this story, to remember that I have the privilege of being a part of how God is saving the world through the church. It reminds me of how God loves me and gave himself for me, so that I can be part of his family. And it reminds me that even small sins are part of a force that is actively unmaking the world, while even small acts of loyalty to God are amplified by his power to do great things for God's kingdom. So since we're on week three of this thing, let me remind you a bit of where we've gone so far. When God created the earth, the earth was simply formless and void. It was nothing but chaos, but God brought order to it by shaping it into something beautiful and good. He created humans as the highest expression of his goodness, but the humans rebelled against him. The natural result of rebelling against the created order was introducing the force of sin, which leads to death. Rejecting the creator of the world meant that humans were exiled from his presence, and without God's presence, the world would slide into non-existence. The world was being unmade, falling back to the chaos which God triumphed over in creation. In story after story, the world spiraled more and more out of control, leading to curse after curse. But God reversed this pattern by making a covenant with Abraham that said that God would bless him, and whoever blessed him, he would bless, and whoever cursed him, he would curse. Not only would Abraham and his descendants be blessed, but the whole world would be blessed through them. The next week, we talked about Balaam, which was one of hundreds of stories about how God was loyal to Israel, even when Israel wasn't faithful to him. It showed that the relationship between God and his people is far greater than even the most religious people could have imagined. Balaam, who was basically the Tom Brady of prophets, was completely unable to curse Israel. Instead, every word that came out of his mouth was really a blessing. He even prophesied that there would be a king that comes out of the family of Abraham, and all the families of the earth would bend their knees before him. Somehow, through this family, all of humanity would be united back to God as he had intended in the beginning. But the very next verse, they violate the most basic rule of the covenant, don't worship other gods. Israel had no idea that God had just dramatically saved them, and as a reader, you have to wonder, is this the people through whom God is going to save the world? Deuteronomy is basically a sermon that Moses gives to Israel as they're about to enter into the promised land. If you remember, God had taken them out of Egypt and saved Israel from slavery. God's goal was that somehow he would be living in the midst of them. Like he could be living in a tent on 123 Sinai Boulevard and walk on down the street three blocks, and God would be living in his tent with all his people. And the most special place where God was present was called the Ark of the Covenant, which was thought of as basically God's throne. The Ark had two cherubim, which were angels that looked like bulls with wings on either side. And there's a lot of passages that say that God sits enthroned between the cherubim. So on either side of the Ark were two cherubim, and somehow God is literally sitting between them in the middle of, God's, of Israel's camp. The way that God was living up close and personal with the Israelites here is a lot like how he's living with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, 9, God is casually walking in the garden in the, in the cool of the day, right next to Adam and Eve. Here, God is casually sitting on his throne in a tent in the middle of the Israelite camp. What God was doing here is he was making a little mini Eden in the midst of his people. If you remember at the end of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God put two cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to guard it. And what goes on either side of the Ark of the Covenant, but sure enough, two cherubim. The gist of it is that the world needed the presence of God, or it would be slowly unmade. To start to remake the earth, he made a space for him to live up close and personal with Israel. Abraham's family would be blessed with an Eden-like presence of God, and if God was with them, then they couldn't help but bless the whole world. And through them, the whole world would be remade so that God could live with them all, just like in the beginning. But as you might imagine, it's not always so easy for sinful humans to live three doors down from God. Just like in the Garden of Eden, sin tends to drive a wedge between God and humans, so that God can't be present. It was that reason which meant that when Adam and Eve sinned, they had to be exiled away from the Garden and away from the presence of God. To keep that from happening, God gave a whole lot of rules in books like Leviticus that basically tell you how to live when God is sitting on his ark three doors down. As you can see, our sin has seriously complicated, what it meant to live with God. In the garden, all you had to do was avoid eating from a certain tree, but now there's a tons of rules about how you can't eat pork, you can't sow your field with two types of seed, along with ten super important rules about God's main priorities. The basic rule that God sets up is the same as the one in the garden. If you follow God's rules, you get to live with God and the world can be remade. If you don't, you'll be exiled from God's presence. Now you might be thinking, geez, God is making it a ton of work for his presence to be with Israelites. In fact, there's a lot of Christians who believe that the law was meant to be way harder than it needed to be. But there's two main ways that I think that idea was wrong. First of all, this kind of law was exactly the kind of thing that people from this area in time period wanted so badly. The other kings in this area, like Baal and Marduk and Ishtar and Asherah, made it really hard to know their role. There's an entire science that ancient people created called divination, where they tried to figure out what the gods wanted. They might slaughter a sheep and look at its liver and say, hmm, there's a line of tissue right here. That means that Baal wants a sacrifice. Or they'll look at the sky and say, hmm, the North Star is a little bit off kilter. That means that Marduk is going to kill us all. They created massive books called Omen Compendia that were supposed to tell you how to figure out the will of the gods. But even then, divination was notoriously inaccurate, and so you basically never knew what the gods wanted. So yeah, that's the alternative. But here, God is putting all his cards on the table and says, look, if you do this stuff, I'll live with you and you'll be blessed. God doesn't play games with us, and he doesn't change his mind, so we can always know more or less what God wants from us. Second, God was only really strict about two big commandments, love your neighbor as yourself and don't worship other gods. When you get into Old Testament history, nobody is ever really punished for stuff like sowing the ground with two types of seed or wearing polyester. They get punished because they worship other gods or they do just some unthinkable, flagrant evil to other people. It's not just that God's standards were so high that the law was impossible. It was that the Israelites are bad even by human standards. And we are too. Most of us know more or less what's right and wrong, even without reading the Bible but we screw it up pretty badly all the time anyway. There's a pretty strong idea in our society that all we need to do ha- to, to, to be virtuous is to educate everyone a lot. They be, that being a better person is just a matter of teaching you more stuff. But that's clearly just a misdiagnosis of human problems. In fact, sometimes knowing more stuff just makes you better at giving excuses for why you do stuff that's obviously wrong. These people studied their law, the law their whole lives, but they couldn't even follow the most basic stuff. In fact, that really shows us just how easy it is for us to screw up the most basic things. We don't simply sin by forgetting that we shouldn't eat pork or small things like that. We sin in deliberate and obvious ways. We are thoroughly broken, and we need God or we ourselves will slip into chaos. In fact, through both the Bible and archaeology, we know that the Israelites were actually pretty good at following the small things, like not eating pork or not making the right kind of sacrifices. When archaeologists discover... Israelite villages villages the main way that they know it's Israelite is that there's practically no pig bones there so they didn't raise pigs because the law said they couldn't eat them check but what we do see is a ton of idols all over the place every house had two or three carved idols and that's pretty consistent with what with what the bible says the Israelites loved to bring sacrifices and follow all the minutia of the law to the letter but the hard part was loving god and loving their neighbors as themselves You would think that they would have a hard time with all these tiny commandments. I mean, there's 613 of them. It must be really tough. But they were actually pretty good at following 611 of them. But they were completely awful at loving God and loving their neighbors as themselves. It got to the point where God became angry about all the festivals and sacrifices that they brought. And all the effort that they put into making the right kind of sacrifices and wearing the right clothes and eating the right things. The religious sacrifices became sins themselves. God says in Amos, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the din of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. In other words, stop putting on a show with all your detailed sacrifices and holidays and start actually fulfilling the heart of the law. It's a lot like what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. All throughout the Old Testament, you know how well the Israelites will prosper 100% by how well they follow the law, because that was how they would keep up the presence of God. And this, by the way, is a good lesson for us. Just like with Israel, whether we succeed or fail as a church will have very little to do with our talents or our good ideas, though God will certainly use them. When What we will have to do is be loyal and faithful to God, to obey him and seek his will, and whether we see it or not, we will be productive in working towards his rescue plan for the earth. We can have really good financial figures, a nice-looking church, even more people coming, but, but if God isn't with us, then sin will unmake us. And this is the main tension that's clear all throughout the Old Testament. God has promised to save the world through the Israelites, but the Israelites are terrible. And so it really doesn't look like it's working. So if you want to know what happens in the Old Testament after Israel enters the Promised Land, you can take a shortcut and just read these two chapters. Israel is called by God to this covenant that's laid out in the law. God would be with them and give them a mini-Eden where they could end up living up close and personal. But Israel was constantly disobeying, not in small ways, but in colossal ways. They caused the world to be unmade almost more than anyone else. God put up with it for hundreds and hundreds of years, until, just like in the Garden of Eden, God sent his people into exile away from him. But even then, God was gracious enough to bring them back from all over the earth. God is saying all of this hundreds of years before it happens. He says, Obey the most important parts of my rules, and you're going to be blessed and stay in the land. But I'll tell you right now that you won't do that. You're going to be sent into exile, but I'll find a way to bless you anyway. And so this exile wasn't merely going to be a punishment. Israel would be scattered over the whole earth, but that would sow the seeds of his coming worldwide kingdom hundreds of years in advance. By the time you get to the New Testament, there's practically a synagogue in every city in the world, and that's no accident. Even Israel's failures and sins, which sent them into exile, were actually part of God's plan to unite the world to himself. And though Israel would fail even in the exile to suffer righteously on the world's behalf, God sent his son, who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he suffered exile, the curse of the law, even though he never disobeyed God. Jesus completed everything that Israel was meant to do, and so he purified a new people, not just from Israel, but from every race, ethnicity, or tongue. Jesus came as an Israelite, fulfilled the law, gave a new law at the Sermon on the Mount, and did everything that Israel was meant to do. That way, the curse of the law falls on him, and the blessing of the covenant is extended to the whole world. And finally, that means that we can have the presence of God in an even more intense way than the Israelites did. The Israelites had God in a tent, but we have Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us, and he came to us in bodily form, in a way that we could see, touch, and smell. And now he gave us his Holy Spirit so that the presence of God is always with us. And that empowers us to do not just the little minutiae of the law, but to fulfill the commandments of loving God and loving our neighbors. What that means is that if you want to resist temptation or find the strength to do what God calls you to do, the best way to do it is to pray. And that's not just a platitude. The creator of the universe who defeated chaos and creation and sin on the cross lives within you. And the only way that anything goes right is because of the presence of God, so why not acknowledge him?